When you ask a question, sometimes it's more about the person that's being asked than the asker. Such is the case when God asks us questions in the Bible. And that'll be our sermon series for the next uh, three weeks. Uh, Before we dive in, this week has been particularly difficult for me um, and many of our church members because one of our church members, a brother in Christ, uh, a friend, Dante Johnson, passed away. Uh, He was an amazing man. He was an amazing father. He radiated the joy of the Lord. And we're going to miss him like crazy. And many of you have asked about how you can help the family, when the services are uh, going to be, and we'll be contacting you and keeping you informed um, when the arrangements get solidified. Uh, We'll contact through email and also through our social media and website. But we do ask that you would be praying for his loved ones, in particular um, his 12-year-old daughter. Your prayers make a difference. So please be praying uh, for the God of all comfort to be present amongst this family. When something like this happens, some of us have some really big questions for God, and God is okay with that. This morning, we begin our look into some of the questions that God has for us. There are uh, 3,298 questions altogether um, in the Bible, uh, many of which are posed by God. He asks 77 questions just in the final few chapters of the book of Job. There are over a thousand questions in the New Testament, uh, most of which are posed by Jesus. Why does God ask so many questions? Why does he ask us questions? Doesn't he know the answers? He's God, right? So he already knows the answers. God is asking a question, and because questions serve different purposes, depending on the occasion, we might wonder what God's intent is in asking questions. Well, we know that his intent is not informational because God already knows the answer. In fact, God actually knows all the facts of the situation significantly better than we know the facts of the situation. And here we find one of the great purposes of God asking questions. God uses questions to force us to confront our own hearts. He questions us not because he needs to know or understand something, but because he wants us to know or understand something. Through questions, God forces us to turn our gaze to ourselves, to our own hearts, to our own motivations. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden. God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to bring into light the fear and shame that keeps us in hiding. Or as he did with Jonah, he says, Jonah, why are you angry? God might force us to confront our own bias, prejudice, judgmentalism, bitterness, so that through his compassion and grace, he might help us move past it. So God questions us, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to know. He questions us not because he doesn't know, but because he wants us to know. And so when God asks us a question today, I wonder if we will be courageous enough to answer it. Because doing so will not mean just calling up a piece of new information. It will mean confronting the truth about ourselves. When God asks a question, we really need to sit up, pay attention, because Jesus is inviting us to ponder alongside the Almighty. So we're beginning this new series this morning called The Questioning God. The question that God asks us today comes from the life of Jesus, and I do think it's one of the most beautiful questions in all of Scripture. Jesus asked this question in John chapter 8. 
Where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Uh, and this story is found in John 8, in the story of a woman caught in adultery. And the story is brilliantly shocking if you are a first century Palestinian. And I believe the Holy Spirit has something brilli brilliantly shocking to teach us this morning as well. So we're going to dive in and read the entire story this morning. It's John 8, 1 through 11. It says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered. He sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. The story is very simple and very beautiful. One does not need to have a lot of biblical knowledge or background to walk away changed from this story. Uh, that said, there are some cultural things in this that I don't want us to miss because it can really help us understand the shocking nature of this story. The narrator tells us from the very beginning that it reeks of being a setup by the religious people. And, the ver and actually, verse 6 tells us that it's a trap. Uh, it's a trap for many reasons, but for number one, they're at the temple. They would never take this to an up-and-coming Galilean rabbi to decide. They take it to Jesus because they're trying to trap him. And here's the trap. This will be on the screens. If Jesus says, don't stone her, he would immediately brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, who were the religious elite, and he would be tried for heresy because he's obviously breaking the law of Moses. If he says, don't stone her, heresy. If Jesus says stone her, he would immediately be taken to the Roman officials because only Rome is allowed to pronounce and carry out capital punishment. Then Jesus would be tried for treason. So he's either going to be guilty of heresy, which loses his impact as an up-and-coming Jewish rabbi, or he's tried for treason by the Roman authorities, and he also loses his momentum. It's a perfect trap. Jesus is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Arthur Motes, was a Christian pastor for 40 years. And he shares that in his conversion story, uh, this story found in John chapter 8 was extremely pivotal. You see, Arthur was Jewish, and he was on a flight to Israel to explore the roots of the Jewish faith. And while on the plane, he, be he began to read the New Testament. And he decided to start with the Gospel of John, the very book we find ourselves in this morning. He found Jesus riveting, compelling. There was something about this rabbi from Nazareth. And he wondered, could this be real? 
Could this be the promised Jewish Messiah? Could this be the king in the line of David that we've all been waiting for? And as he read through chapter 8 of John, our passage this morning, and he, he saw the trap that the Pharisees had laid for him. And Arthur Motes closes the New Testament in frustration, and he says, they got him. I knew it was too good to be true. And he closes the book. Jesus would either have to compromise the law of Moses, or he would have to lose his compassion for hurting people. It's too good to be true. He closes the New Testament, puts it away, and he resides in his heart that the Jewish faith is the way to go. And a week goes by, and while he's in Israel, he saw a New Testament. So out of curiosity, he turned back to John chapter 8 to see which side Jesus ended up choosing. He was blown away by the brilliance of his response and then and there committed his life to following him. The trap is brilliant, but Jesus is brillianter. Just like my grammar. <laughs> See, the woman here is, is just a pawn in the story. After all, where's the guy? After, re, adultery requires two. Last time I checked, you need a minimum of two people to commit adultery. You can probably have more than two, okay? But you need at least two. Many scholars think that the whole thing was a setup because uh, they arranged for this man to sleep with her. Perhaps it was a Pharisee or a scribe himself. Maybe he was just faster and he eluded capture. We don't know. But one thing is certain. This was a plan to discredit, get rid of, and maybe even kill Jesus. The religious leaders use this woman to hurt Jesus, and Jesus here refuses to let her be used. The religious leaders did not care for her at all. Jesus removes her accusers. For Jesus, there's no such thing as no great loss. Jesus desires no one to be sacrificed. Every person matters. This is the earth-shattering truth of the good news of the gospel, that the guilty matter, sinners are loved, the God of the universe is in love with shameful people. It's scandalous. Now, there's no question here that the woman is guilty. She was caught red-handed. Have you ever been caught red-handed? Like you're speeding, and then you see those flashing lights behind you. Your heart starts to beat fast. Your legs start to feel light. We pray that famous law enforcement prayer. Please no, please no, please no, please no, please no. <laughs> You've been there. Guilty. Not long ago, I was caught red-handed. My wife and I will often make deals about dessert. Uh, like, we'll say, okay, we're not going to have dessert like during the weekdays, only on the weekends. We make these deals. Because chocolate and I get along, okay, really well. Trunk or treat does a number. Uh, on me. We love dessert. So we make these deals, and uh, not long ago on a Tuesday night after life group, uh, we drive to her parents' house to pick up the kids, and they're all in the back room, and so we go over there, and, and the, you know, her parents are telling us, you know, new things that our kids are doing and having fun, and we're like, hi guys, you know, we missed you so much, and so her parents are talking about all the things that they did, and I kind of tiptoe to the kitchen as they're in the back of the house, and I open the pantry. Now, honestly, I didn't have bad intentions, okay? I was just going to look inside the pantry to see what was available. So I go inside the pantry, turn the light on, kind of look around at all the treats that I cannot eat because um, it's the middle of the week. And nothing really strikes my fancy. And after all, I wasn't planning on cheating, okay? 
So I turn the light off and I begin to walk out of the pantry. Something catches my eye. Down on the bottom right of the pantry is an open box of Milk Duds. Okay. It all happened so fast, I wasn't sure if it was my eye or my ear. And the duds say, psst, John, down here, John. I'm like, huh? From inside the yellow box, the duds begin to speak to me. No one's around. We're delicious. Come on. We're already open. We won't tell anyone. It's just between you and me. I'm like, we shouldn't be doing this right now. I'm like, shh, we're not going to tell. So I grabbed a couple of those milk duds. I shoved them in my mouth. They, and they were delicious. And they were very chewy. They took a little bit longer than I had planned. And almost immediately, as they're in my mouth, and I'm in mid-chew, I hear Sarah say, come, come, come here, John. Uh, the kids want to show you something. So I go, be right there, you know? And so I go back, and I plan on just kind of standing off to the side watching the kids. And she sees me do this. She goes, what are you eating? What are you doing? Oh, no. I could hear the milk duds laughing from the pantry behind me. I was eating the milk duds in the pantry by myself, all alone, <laughs> caught red-handed. When you are caught red-handed, more broadly, when you're guilty, we got to come clean. This woman is half-naked. She's shamed. She's brought before the temple of the Lord in front of a crowd of people. She finds herself at the feet of Jesus, the very place she should be, at the feet of Jesus. We are all guilty. We too must find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Let me just read the story again. Verse 7 says this. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again, wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. And they dropped their stones when Jesus helped them see the flaws in themselves rather than the flaws in other people. Now, we may not have physical stones. Like, we're not carrying a bag of rocks and then just start throwing them at people randomly throughout our week. But we do have subtle ways of doing so, of throwing stones. Um, my wife and I have a guilty pleasure called The Bachelor. Um, it's this show, and uh, we've watched it pretty much since it started. In every season, these beautiful men and women walk out of the limo the first night, and I immediately start judging them. Uh, and you might be saying, that's messed up. You don't even know them. But I do know them, okay? <laughs> I've seen their personalities. I've seen their interviews. I've seen how they interact in a completely normal situation where 25 people are dating the same person, okay? I know them. And because I've seen them interact a handful of times, well, she's not marriage material. He needs to move on from her. Oh, that one? That one's the crazy one. She's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs right there. Subtle ways, but stone after stone I'm throwing. We got to drop our stones. Now, this is subtle. But it's a, it's a subtle way for stone throwing to creep up in my life and I become more judgmental in my everyday life. And I start to run a commentary uh, when I'm at a coffee house studying, judging people. We got to drop our stones because the children's song is wrong. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Words hurt worse. F.B. Meyer says this. It'll be on the screens. When we see a brother or sister in sin, 
there are two things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. Stones hurt. We throw stones because we harbor hatred. We throw stones because we hold on to bitterness. We throw stones because we get entangled with our anger. We throw stones because we want revenge. We throw stones because we will not let go of the things that upset us. We would never actually throw stones at people, but we'd rather throw emotional or spiritual stones, hurtful comments, generalizations, stereotypes, gossip, judgmental statements, being harsh with the truth. Perhaps uh, take a moment today to get rid of the stones that we throw. We've all got the kind that we like. We've got to drop our stones. Let them fall at the feet of Jesus. Now, as we read this story from John 8, a certain question likely arose in your mind. And to put it simply, it's this, right? What did Jesus do in the sand? Like, what did he write in the dust? What did he, what did he write? Whatever it was, that and his comments led the religious people to drop their stones and walk away. Here's the quick answer. We don't know. But there are many theories. Some think he was quoting the Old Testament law, the Old Testament verses, beating the Pharisees and the religious people at their own game. So he's writing verses. Some think that he was writing out the sins of the accusers. And one by one, as their own sin was carved out in the dust, they left and dropped their stone. Some think that he was simply doodling, treating their accusations with the contempt they deserve. He's just doing smiley faces. He's drawing peace signs. We don't know. But there are three instances in the entire Bible, only three times where God is writing. The first is in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the law. The set, so God's first word he writes is law. The second occasion is found in Daniel chapter 5 when God writes uh, a judgment uh, against King Belshazzar and a pagan king. So God's first word he writes is law. God's second word he writes is judgment. And the final occasion of God writing is found here in John 8. And whatever it was he wrote, it caused a woman who broke the law and stood condemned by her accusers to leave a life of sin while the accusers walked away. First word, law. Second word, judgment. Third word, shatters the judgment of the religious people on the woman who broke the law. God writes three times. I like the final word best. Where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? No one. There's this scene in the Passion of the Christ of Jesus writing in the dust. The story found in John 8. And this story, it's not a story telling us what Jesus did. This is a story that tells us what Jesus does. He's still in the business of removing our accusers. He's still in the business of getting rid of the condemnation that people put on us and that we put on ourselves. 
He is still in the business of freeing us from that. He removes our accusers. He offers us grace instead. He removes our shame. When the world around you is screaming judgment, Jesus is writing grace. This week, I was in my car driving. I listened to a song I haven't heard in a long time, several years. And and it just, it brought me to tears. It's by a band called Reliant K. And here's here's the verse. It says this. When I got tired of running from you, I stopped right there to catch my breath. There your words, they caught my ears. You said, I miss you, son, come home. In my sins, they watched me leave, and in my heart, I so believed. The love you felt for me was more than the love I'd wished for all this time. And this is the part that just, and when the doors were closed, I heard no, I told you so's. I said the words I knew you knew. Oh God, oh God, I needed you. God, all this time I needed you. I needed you. When the doors were closed, I heard no, I told you so's. I told you so is not something that Jesus said to this woman in John 8. I told you so, don't commit adultery. He didn't beat over the head with the Bible. Rather, he wrote a new word into the ground and showed grace instead. The Pharisees used the Bible to beat her down. Jesus used his words to lift her up. To compel her and to to propel her into a life where you will go and sin no more. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. For you, what accusations are against you? In what ways do you feel the condemnation of your own bad choices? Jesus is still in the business of freeing us from those. Romans 8.1 says this. This is so good. So good. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen, yes, and amen. Where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? No one, sir. God, I pray that we live in this reality free from the condemnation. God, the accuser is the Satan. He tries to accuse us. You free us from accusation. So God, free us Fill us up with your love and grace so we can pour it out to a world that so desperately needs you, God. And also, free us from the condemnation and help us to drop our own stones as we find ourselves not as victims falling at your feet and sinners falling at your feet. We find ourselves as sinners holding stones, pointing at someone else. God, we drop the stones and we fall to your feet alongside other sinners to say, fix us, God, heal us. Show us the grace and help us to live more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing together?